The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 15 of the Ascent of Board Games. We're back again to fill your ears with assorted mayhem and talking about board gamey things and random rambling, as is our want. Uh, Who's that? Or talk about famous podiatrists. So we picked games. So today we are here to talk to you about adventure games. This is one of them, they're nebulous kind of concepts. It's a big field that has a lot of overlap with things we've talked about before. It's got a fair bit of overlap with paragraph games, also with dungeon crawls. We've sort of got a set of guidelines we've been going by. Basically, these are games in which a player plays a single character who is going into an area and having adventures that involve at least occasionally fighting stuff. These are games in which you take your adventurer and go and adventure, and mostly it's a bunch of games that we kind of wanted to talk about for good reasons or bad. So we're going to do that now. Yeah, we couldn't quite slot them into paragraph games or dungeon crawls or anything else. Or we wanted to slot them into that, but those episodes were already so big. Yeah, true. I don't know. I don't think we cut a lot of these for size. I think we cut them because we we had more defined rules around the other ones, and these are just the stuff that didn't fit in those. Yeah, they dip a toe into those other game descriptions and don't quite fall into them completely yeah those of you who have listened to this podcast for a few episodes may realize that the episode themes are mostly ways for us to talk about games that we want to talk about anyway so yeah true when you look at the history of adventure games though it's a little weird because really i think it came out of D and lord of the rings and so there's a fantasy theme in a lot of these but before that you got games like life and careers that's what people thought of as adventures you know to go through life and do all your life things yeah and then so lord of the rings definitely ramped that up sure of course lord of the rings really inspired D&D in so many levels and D&D inspired the very first true adventure game on our list which is dungeon exclamation point which was released by tsr in 1975 by david armagary gary gygax michael gray steve winter and s schwab And this was basically the first attempt to make Dungeons & Dragons into a board game. It's a pretty simple one. You've got the board laid out. There are, I think, six or seven different levels in the game. Yep, six levels. But they're all on the same map. And basically, while there are stairs shown on the board, the next level is just kind of down the hall. (laughs) There are decks of monsters and treasures for each level. You basically find yourself a, a room. You flip over the card that's in that room. You attack the monster. If you don't kill it, it attacks you. If you defeat the monster, you get the treasure that's in that room. And your goal is to be the first one to bring a certain amount of treasure back to the entrance. What I thought was interesting about this is uh, just like any good D&D type game, we have different character classes. Although when I looked up what those character classes were, they kind of threw me for a loop. You had elf. Okay, Mm -hmm. fine. Wizard. Okay, that's fine. Hero. Seems awfully generic. Superhero. (laughs) What? What? What's the difference between the hero and the superhero? Joe, obviously the superhero is just inherently better. It is the hero, but super. 
One is part of a cinematic universe and the other is not. <laughs> no, so what's, this is actually one of the interesting things about the game when I was, when I was doing the research on it. Each of the different classes, except for Hero, have their own special abilities. And the more powerful that class's abilities, the more treasure you have to collect to win the game. So, for example, the Hero, who has almost no abilities, really, they have to collect 10,000 gold and get out, and they win. The Wizard, who has Lightning Bolt, Fireball, Teleport, they have to get 30,000 gold to get out. And so, apparently, the amount of gold you get is kind of based on the encounters you have, and the deeper the encounters you go, the more gold you get. Right. Functionally, the superhero has more pluses. You know, mm. they're, they're slightly better at fighting, so they should be fighting things on the deeper levels of the dungeon. And yeah, you more skip treasure. the lower stuff and go straight for that. Yeah, they are, you know, more or less equivalent in terms of difficulty and number of things you have to defeat. The numbers are just a little higher. Wizards are a whole, you know, more complicated thing because they have spells, but. This is not a complicated game. <laughs> there is nothing that really works as gear. You know, there's not any character development. You don't level up. You just go flip some cards, roll some dice, and then try and make it back to the entrance of the dungeon alive. Yeah, there's no persistence. It's very similar to Munchkin in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, sorry to bring that up. No, no, you're not wrong. <laughs> now, I know that the remake that came out in recent history was more heavily themed towards Dungeons oh, and yeah. Dragons and actually yeah. included the Dungeons and Dragons brand. Yep. Did the 1975, like even though it was designed by It was by really Gary Gygax. Gygax. Yeah, the other designers were later. Was it branded as it was, D&D? According to the cover yeah. of the game. Okay. Assuming this is the original nope, cover? that's not. That's There's a purple woman with skeletons. It's great. Nope, it is not branded with Dungeons and Dragons. Though to be fair, wow. their branding game back in 1975 not quite on point. Sure, sure. Although certainly the artwork was done by some of the folks that did a lot of the art. That's the one you've oh, got. Oh wow, Frank. that is some like <laughs> AD and D or not AD and D. That no, is some that's D&D basic D&D right there. Well, that's First why you get Elf as a uh, class. class yeah. yeah, exactly. But again, it's really weird because they didn't have like. Dwarf as a class, which wasn't that one of the... That was one of the early, early ones. Mm-hmm. And classes, instead of wizard, why wasn't it magic user? It wasn't strictly a D&D game. They're branding, <sighs> not on point. That's fair. So we can appreciate it for its role in what came after, but it's not one that I would go and seek out on the secondary market. Yeah, and a lot of these came out from kind of war game companies. One of the companies is not well known as Ariel in the UK, who published the original versions of Sorcerer's Cave and Mystic Wood. Uh, that's 1978 for the first, 1980 for the second, Ariel and Filmar. Both were designed by Terence Peter Donnelly. Mystic Wood actually did come out from Avalon Hill in around 1980, 1981. And so that's the one most of you are familiar with. This added kind of a tile map. So you had big three by five card tiles uh, that you laid out for your dungeon in Sorcerer's Cave and your labyrinthine wood cave thing uh, for Mystic Wood. Uh, in this case, you every time you put down a tile, you put a card in the middle. Some of them stayed around. Some of them moved and came after you. Um, combat, you could actually get items that level up and increase your power for combat. And essentially, you had to collect certain items and get out of the wood or Sorcerer's Cave. Sorcerer's Cave was a little more open-ended, and it had multiple levels, and you just kept going down to see how you did. Mystic Wood kind of wrapped that into more of a structured, competitive game format. So were there sort of character classes? or was it Yeah, they were of... pretty basic character classes. It didn't really have spells, but you could pick up spells as items. A lot of one-shots, so you're still looking at a pretty unsophisticated kind of experience gain kind of setup. So really, Terrence Donnelly 
built it as a way to play D&D without a dungeon master. And it's not really. And again, it doesn't have a dungeon crawl move or dungeon crawl combat system because you're not doing tactical stuff. You're just rolling dice. I thought it was interesting also uh, about a year after the original release of both of those games, you also came out with an extension kit with extra tiles. Yeah. I can't remember us talking about a game this early that had an expansion. Yeah, totally. I can't think of any either. Uh, Ariel did some really interesting and bizarre games. I've got quite a few of them. Uh, And they mix from straight war games to some kind of odd fantasy games, but really early and kind of clever. I'm trying to think of the other games that we've talked about in the 70s, and it does kind of feel like that would have been a hard sell. Because I'm trying to think of other 70s games that had expansions, and I don't think we've talked about that many. No, I can't think of many at all. That might be a first. Well, I am kind of curious. At this time, were there dedicated hobby stores that sold board games like this? Or were these mail order? Or like, how did these get distributed? In the 70s, you got... Basically stores that sold models, crafts. Yeah, model trains, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. And they started stocking games and war games. The place I generally bought war games were right next to the string art. And I bought my TSR and Avalon Hill games at a toy store called Thornberries in Kentucky. Toy store? What is that? toy store, (laughs) We don't know those are anymore. Frank, Brian, can you tell us more stories about life before the internet? (laughs) (laughs) No, it is a dark time. We will not go there. It was a time of great innovation and gaming experiments, some of which worked. And then we have the next game on our list. (laughs) This monstrosity. Which is called Magic Realm. Released in 1979 by Avalon Hill, designed by Richard Hamblin. Now, it's hard to be told what Magic Realm is. You have to experience it for yourself. (laughs) Cannot be told. (laughs) Brian, what if an adventure game had all the things? Right. Well, this is basically the kind of thing that a lot of recent Kickstarter and Big Epic games were trying to do except in 1979 produced by a war game company. So this is an adventure game for 1 to 16 players. (laughs) What? Yes. First red flag. I'm sorry. (laughs) 1 to 16 players? Yes, exactly. You know, so you and your 15 friends can play a game together. Well, there are 16 different classes. Sure, so there's no reason to not just play at the same time. I mean, yeah, exactly. This is a preposterously ambitious game. It's played over a bunch of probably four-inch diameter hexes, all of which have multiple locations on them. If you use the right kind of magic at the right time, you can flip them over and the paths between them change. You program your movement ahead of time. It is ludicrously complex. The original rules, the first edition rules, broke things down into seven different encounters, each of which added a few rules and, just to make it simple, modified some of the rules that you had learned from our previous encounter. The second official rules split that down into only four encounters, so that was better. There have been a couple rewrites. The unofficial third edition clocks in at 240 pages. And the uh, the 3.1 complete is 122 pages. Oh, so man. do I have to take like a, a correspondence class to learn how to play this game? Yeah. Like, there are a lot of people who are just like, what the fuck? I don't want to get involved in this. But the people who love this game really love it. Oh, yeah. If you go on Board Game Geek, you'll find pages and pages of files and updates and reference sheets. There's the compact, basic fundamentals. What do you need to know is only eight pages. Oh, there you go. Wow, that's like, that's magic in and of itself. (laughs) I know, right? There's just a ton of stuff going on here. If you get all the advanced rules in, you've got weather. There are NPCs that you can hire to fight for you. They will wander around. Even the magic system's really complicated. Yeah, there's eight types of spells. You find spells by randomly looting locations. There's just layers and layers of stuff. The combat system, you choose an attack, which basically, fundamentally, it's like thrust or swing or cleave, I think. Yeah. So, Brian... Yeah, thrust, swing, or smash. 
Real quick, I just want to interject Nothing here. about this game is real quick, Mike. As we are <laughs> discussing this game, I can't help but read the description on the side of the box, which the first thing I want to point out is ages 12 and up. <laughs> A 12-year-old could understand this game, Brian. What's your problem? Here's the thing. In 1979, a 12-year-old had nothing else to do. <laughs> there was no Fortnite. Mm, there was no YouTube. You know, that, that first basic kind of scenario where you move around and get stuff? This man, three or four pages. Totally mm-hmm. easy. The second one where you kind of spawn some monsters, you know, adds a couple pages. And then combat's another six or seven pages and you're lost. That's what 12-year-old me was. Just to kind of point out, though, it does give a description of some of these classes. For example, and I'm quote here, you can play the role of a berserking Viking. Sure. Or a wily elf. Or a terrible witch king, dwarf, Amazon wizard, knight, and more. So only two of those classes are good. The, the rest, rest are, are terrible. terrible. And you really need to get a sense for what your character does. Like there's the swordsman who is super fast and hits really hard, but can't deal with things that have armor and can't deal with like big monsters. So, you know, if he fights a bunch of goblins, he's great. If he comes up against a dragon, he's screwed. Then you have the knight who is really good against fighting big armored things, but is going to get swarmed by a pack of goblins. And different monsters live in certain parts of the board and you have to kind of know what's going to be there. It's it's And they, they have marks and sounds and different identifiers. So if you're in a space close to them, there's a good chance you'll be able to, oh crap. But they only activate on certain turns. <laughs> There's also the phases of the moon. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Wait a moment. Why is that important? Magic. Oh, sure. Magic is based on the phase of the moons, obviously. Well, also, well, yeah. There's also the colors of magic. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> so this game is ludicrously complex. I really want to play it again someday just because there's really a lot of cool stuff in here. Avalon Hill that did a lot of really complex games. They had a 1 to 10 complexity scale for everything. This was a 9. Yeah. The what, only one to really was be a 10? Advanced Squad Leader, which is a... <laughs> sure. Which sure. is pretty much an epic, epic rule yeah. book. Don Greenwood, who was uh, basically over production at the time, really had the style of writing rule books that was very numbered sub case sub case sub case sub case with like four or five digits under each rule paragraph and section and didn't get a sense of how to actually play the game you would find the rules were all there but organized in a way that no sane person could understand just to give you an example under victory conditions there's section 38.22 where it says he records the number assigned to each category in its row under points that's a section of itself when you're writing down your victory conditions. It is not written for human beings. Sounds like a legal oh. document. <laughs> I was going to say, it really that sounds is. like a legal document. I do this or, move. Or under... the emergency preparedness binder at your uh, yeah. you know, at your local convenience store. One thing I did think was interesting, and it kind of reminded me of um, Tales of Arabian Nights, where at the beginning of the game, you pick one of, or any, five any combination categories. of five different things. So what is it? Great treasures, spells, fame, notoriety, or gold. And you assign point values to it. And as long as those points equal up to five, you win the game. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting that before the game even starts, you're like, well, I guess this game, I'm going to go for notoriety. You can basically bid what you want to focus your game on. As fascinating as this game sounds like, unfortunately, I think most of us have not played this, not from a lack of trying, but just like, yeah, this game is dense. Yeah. We'll put pictures in the show notes if you look at the to the side of the board because there's the whole board with the hexes. And then there's a setup on the side, which are the stacks for all the different locations with the treasures and the monsters and the spell cards. And this was, again, the age of perforated cards that you would have to tear out and which looked horrible. 
but it's an adorable epic monster. I do like the uh, art style on it. It's very reminiscent of like the 1970s D&D. Oh, this this is absolutely the kind of thing that would go on the side of a van. So. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. There's even a wizard I'm on pretty it. sure that's Christopher Lee as Saruman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I guaranteed somewhere there's a van with that on the side of it. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to a place where we can have a game and we can expand the game to our heart's content instead of having everything in one box. And clearly that game is Talisman. It has functionally an infinite number of expansions, I think. I think they, they're still releasing them, I think, right now, as far as I can tell. Talisman was released in 1983 by Games Workshop and designed by Robert Harris. And as part of this, we're also going to be talking about Relic, which was released in 2013 by Fantasy Flight Games and designed by John Goodenough. Talisman, classically, is an extremely simple game. On your turn, you roll some dice and you decide if you're going to go left or you're going to go right. And you move that number of spaces and you encounter the location you move to. It might involve drawing a card. It might involve rolling some dice based on some stats that you have to do a thing. I think some spaces just have like, a, like, hey, if you have this much stats, you do a thing. Yeah, or you can choose to go to shop and buy stuff. And eventually when you get to the middle, it may have you draw two cards or, you know, lose a life in the desert. And so your goal in Talisman is to get to the center of the board. There's an outer circle, an inner circle, and then the inner gauntlet. At the center of the board is the crown of command. Um, there's a couple of spaces you have to kind of fight through to get to the to the crown of command. And once you get to the crown of command, you need to stay there long enough to be able to fully control the crown of command by defeating all your other opponents. Um, so I remember correctly, right? Like when you get the crown of command, you like affect all your other opponents as they're trying to rush to get I, to you. I think you just like damage somebody each turn. Yes. And you're trying to whittle them all down before they get to you. Once you take control of the Crown of Command, you're trying to kill all your other opponents and therefore be the only one who is left who now owns the Crown of Command forever. All your opponents are still rushing to get to you and take the crown from you and then try to kill you. Thematically, I just want to point out, it seems like a pretty crummy magic item, especially one called Crown of Command, where the only way that you can operate it is if you murder everyone (laughs) around you. That's okay. One of the first expansions added a deck of six cards that you drew to see exactly what you encounter. It might be a dragon that you kill it in the game. It also included the awesome, horrible Black Void. So the first person who makes it turns over the void, dies, loses the game, and then go on to the next one. You fall one. into a black hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the later editions moved away from that crown command because it took freaking forever. Yeah, It's a big bag of random. It's a roll and move. Especially in the earlier editions, there were, let's say, some significant balance issues. If you happen to get the right item at the right time, you know, things become a cakewalk. There were, as Joe mentioned, a million expansions at one point for the original game. There were, I think, two different expansions, each of which had two corners of the board with, like, expansion maps on them. No, they didn't actually have corners of the board. They were separate. You didn't get but the they, corner they, they thing. they extended on the corners. You it? didn't get the corners until you got to the Fantasy Flight 3rd edition. Huh, yeah, okay. first edition, they were just separate boards. Oh, okay. You just kind of laid them around. Really, I feel like this is a missed opportunity for those expansions to just be boards that you unfold and then put the original board on to just add more concentric rings to the outside. (laughs) So I've played the digital implementation of this game that is based on the third edition fantasy flight game. And it's fine. I think it automates a lot of the deck things, which make the game move a little bit faster. It's still meh. There's a modicum of bring your own fun, and I think you have to approach this the same way you approach games like Tales of the Arabian Nights, where, like, you're not playing to win, you're playing to experience a story, and, like, some things are going to happen to you, you might become a monkey prince, like, who knows? And then the game is over. 
That said, Relic actually changed his things up a lot. It's set in the 40K universe. Which inherently makes, makes it, it better. better. Yes. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Well, I mean, like, I like Relic a lot. Like, Relic solves a lot of the weird corner cases in base talisman by making the game a little bit more gamey, in all honesty. Right? Like, decisions mean a little bit more. Normally, your character's focused on a specific stat, depending on what your character is. You start off as being better at might encounters or cunning encounters. Yeah, there are three, and they're tied to the three different colors on the spaces. Right. So you can go after you know, strength encounters, which are red. It gives you a little bit more information to make informed decisions on. Yeah, totally. Plus, you start as a specific character or specific faction, I guess, as opposed to being a blank slate. So you're kind of good at something kind of starting off. Well, I mean, you did have that in Talisman, too. There were different characters who had different, you know, combinations of things. But I suspect that the ones in Relic are a little more varied. That said, there were some very different ones in Talisman, most of which were horribly broken. Oh, yeah. There was the Prophetess, who basically, every time you draw a card, just draw two cards and pick one. <laughs> that seems really <laughs> she good. Was, she was real good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She won a lot. Oh, uh, yes. It is fun watching people, like, go to the middle way too early. <laughs> they, they, they <laughs> That's true. Like I can handle this. Oh, God. <laughs> Let me out. <laughs> yeah, the intersection in the original Talisman was extremely punishing. Oh, yeah. If you were not ready for it, you were just dead. The first time somebody described it to me is they were saying it's fantasy monopoly. <laughs> very true. I mean, you're not buying and selling properties, but it is very much, you know, roll and move, do things, maybe you get lucky, and people will probably hate you afterwards. Yeah, the, the roll and move aspect is really, it's hard to overlook. <laughs> I cannot when, stand when you're that playing mechanic. in the 70s, it was the bomb. I mean, <laughs> totally. Because, yeah, we just did a lot of roll and moves. Yeah, I guess I did have that's a lot more had. special abilities than I remember them having now that I'm re-looking at the components of Talisman. Mm -hmm. I haven't played the original Talisman. You are now good. I like there's a card for that. Oh, yeah, you are now evil. Thing. <laughs> totally. Alignment is important, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go to the church, if you're good, you might get good things. If you're evil, you might get bad things. Yep. Yep. Once you get the expansions, they introduce a lot more characters. And if you have all of them, you've got like two dozen characters to pick from? More. Yeah, I think there I was think like about two dozen 50. in the base game. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they would do things like, at one point during the Games Workshop era, they would have characters like the Chainsaw Warrior, who was from a, a different board game of theirs that oh, just yeah. sort of brought in. There's an entire expansion called Timescape, which included all the 40K stuff. Cross-marketing, man. Oh, yeah, totally. I think it's one of those games that is probably never going to go away just because it's a simple, easy-to-learn fantasy game that you can play with kids. Although some of the versions are a and little bit just bloody iconic. And I mean, but yeah, it's a classic. It's not one that I would necessarily seek out to play. But if somebody wants to play it, I would be happy to. It's something you could bring to people that don't want a super complex game, but yeah. want to play a board game. Like I've had success bringing at least Relic to people that aren't necessarily board gamers, and they, they're able to follow it very easily. So that being said, I like Relic a lot, actually. Like I think oh, yeah, totally. as, a, as an advance on the Talisman format, it's a really good game. Sure, would play. And yes, there is a Talisman Batman edition. <laughs> there we go. You're not wrong. Frank, your memory is astounding. It's yeah. a little no, terrifying. terrifying. Scary. Terrifying I know. Ah, uh, yes. Actually, him just saying it probably will it into being is probably what happened. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, Frank, I just Frank's the page and there it was. <laughs> Retroactively. Like, that's impressive. So speaking of Frank and terrifying. Yes, there is a game called The Gothic Game, uh, released in 1992, Tormayax Games, designed by Nigel Andrews and Robert Wynn Simmons. It's a very, very British game. My copy has Terry Jones with a blurb on the back. <laughs> 
And that is very British. proudly announces on the front of the box that the object of the game is to kill all the other people on the board. It comes in a long Parker Brothers style box with a trifold board, cheapy plastic pawns, and some really nice ghoulish artwork cards, all black and white. Basically move around the board, roll and move, uh, where you kind of choose your path. And uh, occasionally you can go into room and draw a card. Cards will cause you hit points of damage or potentially give you weapons. Your object is to actually kill other people. Two ways of doing that. One is, well, get a weapon. If you walk up to someone, get adjacent to them in a hallway, you can play a weapon. If they don't have a defense, they die. There's none of that subtle, <laughs> oh, I hurt you for, nope, you just die. That's it, gone. Escalates quickly. Yep. Life you can is do other things cheap. Like if they're forced by another card to go to the lavatory, there happens to be a giant cauldron of boiling oil on the tower above the lavatory, and you can go up there and pour it down on them. <laughs> Going into the Great Spiral Staircase tends to kill people because you do this painful roll that slides off the bottom. Yeah, what is it? You go down and you can roll to try and make your six, way back on up? On a six, you go up. On one Any other number, you go down. down. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a spiral staircase down into doom. Wow. There's a giant black pawn that if you go into the crypt, you're bitten by a vampire and can spend four turns wandering the corridors looking for people to kill. Preferably not the ones with steaks and garlic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complete chaos of a game and gloriously. I mean, random, capricious. There's a lot of ways to kill people. One of the other ones is uh, if you land next to someone and you don't have a weapon, you can basically choose their move, which might be, you know, into the Great Spiral Staircase <laughs> or into something else dangerous. And so it's just a ghoulish, capricious game. I've heard rumors of a second edition that's being worked on. The art I've seen is not the original classic mm. 60s, 70s board game art. From the description, it is everything I dislike about games, but it's still tremendous fun to play. It's roll and move, it's completely random. It's just a matter of draw the right thing at the right time and you're good. But as long as you're all approaching it with a mindset, it is tremendous fun. And it's what, half an hour, 45 minutes? It, this, runs, this it can run long. long. It can run 90 with a big group. Eh, okay. And with people that kind of try to win. If people try to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't know if the game would be the same without the art aesthetics, in all honesty. Like, if they redid the game and they didn't yeah, have the similar art aesthetics, it'd be weird. Yeah, if it takes yeah. itself super seriously, I yeah, think it was going to lose much. something. Yeah. Yeah. But the designers did a one-act musical based on the gothic game. <laughs> if you Google around, you can find one of the songs from it. That's going in the show notes. <laughs> and it does mention the Great Spiral Stair. So we mentioned Talisman a little while back as a game that is travel around and have your adventures and try and get strong enough to defeat the big bad. It was fun, but not great. This next game is basically, I think, a better version of Talisman. It has a lot of the same functionality in it, but there's a lot more game there. And this is Prophecy, released in 2002 from Alter Games by Vlada Shvatel, who is a name that you guys will probably know if you've done a lot of board game stuff. He was the guy behind Through the Ages, Galaxy Space Trucker. Alert, Galaxy Trucker. Even Codenames. Codenames is his, yeah. Very prolific and very good designer. Prophecy is, like I said, a, a talisman-style game. You're, you're traveling around the board trying to gather the artifacts that you need to go and defeat the big bad. You are gathering spells, you're getting equipment, you're fighting things. You have a little more control over your movement. Actually, a lot more control. So in Prophecy, movement is predictable. You don't roll dice. You can just move where you want to. In addition, cards are often face up on the board. And so you know what you're headed for. And you can pay extra to move, move by ship, 
and such, assuming that you actually have coin. So you're actually kind of thinking and planning, ooh, I can make it to there, and I can definitely kill that before anyone else can get there. Experience is a multi-tiered thing where you go to universities and buy one of the face-up cards. Yeah, there's like four different factions that you can get things from, and they each kind of specialize in different stuff. Different styles of things. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of stuff is face-up. Also, in terms of healing and recovery and everything, there's an event card every turn, every round, that basically is flipped up and people tend to get you know hit points back slowly over the game. You don't even need to kind of deal and run off and heal. Uh, you may if you're really hurt. So stuff dribbles back in, so you don't have to worry as much about that. You're focused on you know leveling up, getting experience, and killing things. There are character classes. They help determine mostly which schools you can train in. And the basic stats. It has the talisman stats, you know, strength, willpower. And is otherwise, I mean, it almost looks like a set of house rules for talisman that got out of hand. (laughs) (laughs) And the end is a little better. Basically, you need to have, what, four of the five big artifacts? Or I think if you have an artifact and you kill the big bad, once you have an artifact, you can go after the big bad. Mm, Which is super tough. Yeah, totally. But even then, you kind of know what it is. So, Or actually, you can find out what it is. Yeah, other there's a certain amount of research you can do. It's actually Prophecies in my top five games, period. I think it's so much better than Talisman. I feel like in the, what, 15 episodes we've done so far, we've heard about 17 games in your top, top five. five yeah, totally. yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, Brian, it's a top five, but decimals are included. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Sandy and I both play this, and we play it pretty hardcore, I mean, competitive because we know the game so well. There's been a second edition. I know there were a couple Well, the first edition was Alter Games. Second edition was Z-Man and added a couple of expansions that are okay. Certainly not necessary. Yeah. I I wouldn't worry about them. If you're looking for a talisman-like game with a little more control and tactical decision-making, I would recommend Prophecy. I think an interesting game to talk about would be Runebound. It was released in 2004, published by Fantasy Flight Games and designed by Daryl Hardy and Martin Wallace. The fact that Martin Wallace's name is on this just blows my mind. Nah, he's all over the map. I mean, really. I don't know. Everything I know of his seems so Euro-y. You need to play Wildlands. Okay. In Runebound, unsurprisingly, you take charge of a hero. There are a couple of decks of different difficulties, and High Lord Margoth is in the highest level deck. So you can just, like, roll through the highest level deck until you find him and then defeat him, and he's difficult to defeat in combat. Your other option is through questing and searching other locations, you can find three dragon runes, which will also allow you to defeat High Lord Margoth, because dragon runes are very powerful in the world of Terranoth. For those of you that have been listening, that would be the same universe as Descent, which we talked about in Dungeon Crawls. And Rune Wars which we talked about in 4X games, yes. and also Legacy Terranoth of Dragonhold, games. Yeah. which we talked about in Paragraph games. Well, Terranoth is very busy. Fantasy <laughs> Flight just really wants you to like their fantasy setting. Fantasy Flight really wants to reuse their art. Yeah, they, they so, sure do. So badly. <laughs> and the art's good. Yeah, there are many heroes in this game that eventually show up in Descent or show up in a variety of their other settings. In fact, if I recall correctly, in... Either the base game of Rune Wars or the expansion, there are actually copies of the heroes from that game that you can play in this. Yeah, I think it was in the second edition of Runebound. It was right around when they released Descent. They released a hero pack. Oh, yeah. Which was the heroes from Descent that you could then play in Runebound. Yeah. And, like, as a game, like, I have very fond memories of Runebound, right? So you have a couple of stats, and as you encounter challenges where you have to roll a die and then you add your stat and you see if you can hit a specific target number uh the base game had a d20 as the die that you were rolling so it was (laughs) 
highly die dependent. Yeah. Uh, the second edition moved to two d10s instead of d20, and then the third edition. The third edition moves to tokens, which is awesome because you basically flip a bunch of tokens and you can activate the tokens in order. Combat feels a little more like Button Man, and it's almost a throwback to Magic Realm, which had its token combat system. The board is a big hex-based board. You can wander around and go functionally wherever you want, though obviously in each area there are encounter tokens. When you do an encounter token, there's a color for the encounter, right? Green, yellow, or red. And so obviously the green encounter tokens are easier. The yellow encounter tokens are kind of the middle level and the red encounter tokens are the hardest. I feel like there's also purple. Are those randomized or do you know where they are? They're placed on the board based on the initial map. And actually getting to them first is actually a big way to kind of get ahead early. One of the cool mechanisms of the game, which I don't think we've seen a lot of in all honesty, is Fantasy Flight loves unique dice. Dice that are unique to their game. Yes, they do. Boy, they ever. There are terrain dice, right? And so they have, you know, there are five or six different terrains, like swamps and plains and roads and forests and a couple others. And so you roll these terrain dice and it's based on your character's movement speeds, the number of terrain dice you roll. And then you spend terrain dice to move into that terrain. A terrain might be grasslands and also a road, or it might be grasslands and also a river. It might be a forest and a river, or it might just, just be a forest or just be a grasslands. And so you kind of spend these movement dice to move into those terrains and if you can't spend them then if you're surrounded by the wrong kind of terrain right you don't go anywhere which is interesting so it's just a hyper advanced roll and move <laughs> i mean sure yeah I mean, it's, it's not the it's a it's a like the next evolutionary step right yeah totally. uh, and like the the mechanism like the movement mechanism i think is in some ways is one of the ways the game is actually rather charming i like the idea of doing that in practice it tends to be rather fiddly yeah, you try and figure out sure. the combination of dice that you can use in a certain order to get where you're trying to go. I think it's a neat idea. I think it's just a, an extra level of complexity that this one doesn't especially need. Oh, Brian, you don't like your outcomes of your, your games being based entirely on Shut dice rolls? Shut up! <laughs> they actually handle that pretty well in the second and third editions. You, As soon as you're done moving, you pass the dice to your left. That person immediately rolls their dice and handles so the moving. start planning they out what you're doing. While you're finishing up the combat. It's a good plan. Yeah. Like I said, I have really fond memories of this game. Adventuring feels really fun in this game. When you move up to the next tier of challenge, it does feel like a big jump. Like it is noticeable. Um, There are cities you can go to and buy equipment and you can hire allies and the allies can increase your skills. And all in all, I I feel like the game, even like the initial version really kind of came together as a game that had a very clear mission statement. And it was obvious for everyone, like kind of what was going on. There's none of the kind of like the 70s and 80s big bag of random. There's small amounts of random interspersed, but there's a lot of control. And you're moving towards a goal, and you're kind of constantly moving forward towards that goal. Yeah, it's more directed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel like maybe the first edition could have taken a little more development time because, like, they did the first edition and a year later did the second edition, yeah. which kind of suggests that there were some things that some more testing might have caught. I agree. Yeah. And then there was the third edition that was like another 10 years on, which and I think makes a up a fair number of changes. Yeah. Third edition is amazing. Both the first and second edition took a little too long. You know, that's a four-hour game. Second edition kind of reigns it in to a little over two, and it feels like it moves a lot faster. The token combat system is awesome and addictive. 
Okay, I'll have to check that out. I hadn't seen the third edition. Yeah, but I do remember fondly playing this game for three hours and <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah, you know, getting pizza and just having a grand old time. I think that's another adventure. one of the the games that was fairly early when I first started meeting you guys and gaming with you guys yeah. is one of the ones that we got in play. There are also a lot of expansions to this one, particularly for the second edition. Fantasy Flight game with expansions? I know. Who, what? Who would have thunk it, right? One thing I think is really interesting is they had an expansion that was set in the world of Midnight, which is a great cool little RPG that I like a lot, even though I've never gotten to run it for more than a few sessions. Basically a setting uh, like the Lord of the Rings, except Sauron has already won. So the PCs are all kind of hiding and laying low and trying to defeat evil. It's a fun campaign. I have no idea what the Runeband version is like, but I wanted to mention it. That's fascinating. That's trademarked. Stop stealing it. (laughs) TM. You're getting royalties every time we say that word. It's true. It's true. Well, we're definitely tired of fantasy settings by now, so let's go to zombies, because no one ever does anything with zombies. Yeah, zombies aren't played out at all. (laughs) So we're talking about Last Night on Earth. Came out in 2007 by Flying Frog Productions, designed by Jason C. Hill, which if you've played any Flying Frog games, you'll see his name on lots of stuff. But essentially, it's team-based play, or one versus many, depending on how many players you have. You have the group that's controlling the zombies, you have the group that's controlling the survivors. Uh, This is actually the first, one of the very first games I bought when I started getting into board games, like, you know, beyond the monopolies of the world. And what appealed to me was the adventure aspects of it, right? It sounded like you could play a story in the different scenarios. But essentially, the zombies will go first, they move around, they'll attack humans. Um, They're trying to basically just kill all the humans. They have cards that they can play that will modify things, allow them to move more or spawn more zombies in the spawning pits or modify their combat. And then the humans will go. They'll be moving around as well. They'll be looking for items, usually that's scenario dependent. Maybe they're trying to find gasoline for the old truck. Maybe they're trying to find a flare gun. Uh, Maybe they're just trying to find weapons to fight off the zombies. But I really liked it back in the day. It's funny, uh, when I look back at uh, my copy of it, the cards themselves are dog-eared. I apparently played it so much. It added a lot of interesting aspects, um, and the production on it is quite entertaining. They included a CD of music complete with uh, (laughs) groaning zombies in it. Starting the long tradition of Flying Frog soundtracks. Yep, they also have the artwork, which consists of people in costumes taking photographs. Clearly, the Flying Frog production staff's friends and family <laughs> oh, yeah. wearing totally nonsense costumes that were clearly like rented for the day. <laughs> and that makes it sound like it's terrible, but it is sort of charmingly cheesy. Yes. Really awesome charming. bad, yeah. It fits the theme, though, because oh, yeah. like it plays off like a cheesy B-rate horror film. Which is exactly what it is. And I, it I think it fits perfectly. so well. And in all honesty, the games that followed had the same aesthetic, but it just didn't quite feel the same. Yeah, the Colonial one felt a little out of style, although they were going hammery kind of with that. Mm-hmm. And by the time they've gotten to Shadows of Brimstone and Forbidden Fortress, yeah. they've they've kind of moved on to just using artist drawings, which like I'll support an artist being paid money, like go sure. artist. But also, I got to tell you, I miss those aesthetics. I think they really help make that game. They really yes, sell it. Painted art helps sell Kickstarters. <laughs> Not I wrong. think the sure. lesson that they learned. One thing I, I remember about this game is how you set up the board. So it actually consists, I believe, of four fairly large squares that yes. you then piece together. Single-sided squares. It's actually really funny to look at. Now you're like, what? why is this backside just black? What We've are they come thinking? so far. <laughs> But, like, each of those boards have, like, a different shop on them, I yep, think. Yep. And you can find different things yeah, in different them. Yeah, different items. And, either. like, that can change based on the scenario. 
But then the crazy thing about this game is when you get up, I think, to six players where you have two people controlling the zombies. Yep. And that makes the game insanely difficult for the zombie players because they have to coordinate yep. without really coordinating out loud because yeah. then the they're telegraphing the what they're going to do. Know what they're going to do, and like know kind of what's in their hand. Yeah, they do some interesting things with the mechanics of the game as well. Like combat is resolved where the heroes roll two dice and the zombies roll one, and whoever has the highest roll is the one who wins. Zombies win ties. But just because the heroes roll higher, they don't actually kill the zombie. They just get away from it. They don't take damage they from they it. They fend it off. Yeah. Now, if they roll doubles, they do actually do a wound to the enemy. So. They're looking for doubles, and weapons help modify that. But it's an interesting tweak to how combat normally works in games. I'm pretty sure weapons negate that almost entirely, where it's like if you've got a shovel, if you roll if higher, you win, then you, you kill, you yeah. kill it. So it's interesting because Board Game Geek has 109 pages of zombie <laughs> games, and five of them come before Last Night on Earth. All the rest of them after Last Night on Earth. Sort of by release date, right? Like, it's very, very early. Like, there's only a couple of pages that are earlier than Last Night on Earth in terms of board games with the zombie mechanic as cited by Board Game Geek. And then, obviously, there's the after. We live in a zombie culture now, so. Well, and and it's worth noting, the the name of the game comes from a card that you can play uh, against the heroes, (laughs) where if you have a male and female hero in, in in a building... They spend the last night on Earth together and they lose their turn. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Was made worse because I think uh, several of the characters were kids. Oh, yeah, that's true. They were high schoolers and then the adults. High schoolers. <laughs> you know, they're on the budding cusp of adulthood. Thank God. <laughs> I think it directly adapted functionally every slasher film in the 80s. Sure. So. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And uh, just one other thing is there is also an invasion from outer space game that uses the same engine and can be mixed together if you want to get Martians (laughs) in your zombies. I have a lot of fond memories of this game. This is one of the games, like, when we first started playing board games, like, this was one of the games we played a fair amount of back when it first came out. This game also has what I like to call the Omega asterisk, the asterisk (laughs) that is life. For easily a year, a year and a half, we played this game where if you search for cards, you can search in both the discard pile and the draw pile. And according to the rules of the game, you can only search in the discard pile. So it has a surprisingly large difference on the game when you can only search in the discard pile and not in the draw pile. Isn't there a dog you can get as one of your characters or something like uh, that? Well, Dead of Winter has the dog. No, I think this this one's like Bessie or something. I think there's a dog in the game. There is. Bessie is an expansion that exists. Yeah. And then they, I think a couple years ago, they released a 10th anniversary edition where they had like a a miniature they added for the truck for that one scenario with the truck where you're trying to get gas for it or something. I'm like, all right, well, whatever, guys. (laughs) Why not? Reason to re-release it, I suppose. Yeah. In my mind, right, like of all the Frying Fog games, this is the one that like- Frying Fog? Of all the Flying Frog games, this is the one that stuck with me the most. And this was also their first- release and i think it was a big enough hit that it kept them in business and they're still producing games today kind of they're certainly not advertising (laughs) games today let them last long enough to make shadows of brimstone and now we all regret it (laughs) which like i i know that i've previously voiced my frustrations with this but like i i constantly get advertisements from them late and so it'd be like, hey, a couple of weeks ago, they had a sale on some things that you you definitely wanted. I'm just like, Flying Frog, why? Why are you doing this? Email it so hard, Mike. 
I'm on your newsletter, for God's sakes. Like the artwork, I think Last Night on Earth overall can best be described as charmingly cheesy. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah it's a fun sure. game. 100%. Yeah. I think this might be one of my favorite games of all time. Top five? Top five. Granted, I've got way less of those. <laughs> you like five-ish. Right. It's almost like where That's I need to be. not enough, really. Maybe ten. You know, it's hard to be sure. Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, published by Paizo Publishing and designed by Mike Selinker. Man, this game does such a phenomenal job of emulating a Pathfinder adventure through cards. I mean, it's all right there in the title, really. (laughs) Each player gets a character and makes a deck of what are called basic cards, which are, you know, your longsword, your shields, your basic armors, your basic items, your basic allies, like a dog, a horse, an adventurer who is coming along with you. And you play through scenarios that each have a set number of locations based on number of players. Each of those locations has a deck that consists of both good things and bad things, boons and banes. On your turn, you can flip over the top card. If it is a boon, you can roll some dice to attempt to get it. If it is a bane, you can play some cards to attempt to fight them or overcome them. And in each of these decks is a bad guy and or a bad guy's hirelings. If you defeat the big bad, you win. And it gets a little bit more complicated. They've got a whole, like, if you run into the bad guy but haven't explored all the locations yet, he runs away. The games have a 30-round countdown timer, so you are moving inexorably towards the end of the game. There is no dilly-dallying or anything like that. And the countdown timer is pretty tight, right? Like, it can and has on us many times run out. If you get a bad beat of cards functionally, right? Like you can be right up against the timer or totally lose to the timer. And I think what, at least in our group, really made this game was the cooperation between players. So anytime somebody is making a check, other players can play cards to assist them. And that mostly came in through the deities on the blessing cards, which would have... A number of effects from re-roll X number of dice, roll additional dice. Those same blessings would also let you explore additional times. Um, and just, it was a all-around good time, had by all, and told an excellent story. Well, and I think what was important about it is your characters progressed over time. You unlocked, uh, yes. unlocked their, their ability scores improved, you got better dice, you got better equipment, you changed over time, and you got to kind of customize your character based on what they had experienced already, which is why this game completely stopped us from ever being able to enjoy Dragonfire, because that is there's true. no feeling of that whatsoever in that game. I've also got deep-seated feelings about Crossfire and Dragonfire. As the expansions came out, right, they did a number of function their adventure paths as this kind of reimagining into a card game, and they played with the mechanics in interesting ways and did interesting things. Each of the expansions does something different. Skulls and Shackles, right? Like you have a pirate ship and you sail around. Wrath the Righteous is you become Paragons. And so like you can use the D20 in that version. <laughs> it also introduced like mass combat, kind of. Kind of. Which, you know, not all of the expanded bits were good. I mean, yeah, experiments. Some of them succeed, some of them fail. But yeah. it, this almost sounds like an LCG in a lot of ways. You know, you have your, your base thing and then you just have a bunch of additional stories that do neat twists on the mechanics. I think if LCGs had existed when the first Pathfinder card game had come out, it probably would have had an influence on how they marketed and designed the game. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm kind of glad it didn't. The marketing... You love living card games though, Mike. 
Not all of them, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, really, I've found that I don't love competitive LCGs. Isn't that weird? <sighs> but like the their marketing scheme for this is you would buy a big box that would have your first set of adventures in it and a base set of cards. And then you would buy some smaller packs, which also fit into the box. What a concept. This game definitely wins the award for best box design. <laughs> Wow. Mm -hmm. And you would kind of expand out from those booster packs, which would introduce bigger cards with bigger numbers. And I mean, come on, who doesn't love watching numbers go up? (laughs) And just really good. I love it all around. I want to say there was a second edition. Yeah, there is a second edition. It's like just come out. It has. It's actually on order from Paizo. I haven't actually paid the money for it, though. That may be why they haven't sent it to you. It's also probably worth mentioning here, uh, though we haven't played a ton of it, is Apocrypha, which is one of Mike Selinker's games. It was published by Lone Shark Games in 2017. And it's fascinating because in Pathfinder card game, you use all the dice that is in classic D&D dice. So D4s, D6s, D8s, D10s, D12s. And then in Apocrypha, you only use D6s. And I actually feel like in some ways that made Apocrypha a worse game, right? Because like the number ranges became a lot more constrained. And so there was a lot less space to tell interesting stories around the numbers. Because when we played the first two scenarios, they felt a lot more constrained than the Pathfinder card game. Also, the the way they told story was a little weirder, right? Because you have like the setting and the monster and the modifier card that kind of sets up the environment for that specific scenario. As opposed to in Pathfinder card game, it's like, hey, no, this is the scenario that you're doing, and here's the description, and here's the setting. Also, the rule book for the Apocrypha game, at least the first one, is aggressively bad. Oh, the rule book for the Pathfinder card game, also aggressively bad. Oh, okay. But, like, you could get through it. I mean, part of the interesting thing about these two games is how they use cards, and you don't always just play a card to use it. Sometimes you would put the card on the bottom of your deck. Sometimes you would shuffle it into your deck. And that's important because your deck is also your health. If you ever go to draw a card and can't, you're dead. And I like what you said about the dice, Joe, because I think that also differentiated the characters a lot more in the Pathfinder card game. If you're playing a wizard, you've got a D4 strength, which means when you go to make a strength check to pick up this sword, you're almost guaranteed not to get it. However, if this is the magic sword plus five that your warrior player really, really wants, that warrior is going to be like, please invest a lot of bonuses into this so you can pick it up for me. And also, hey, I'll invest some bonuses into this as well. I'll play some blessings on this roll because I really want it. Um, And maybe you still might not get it, right? Because there's still a chance you might not get it. Apocrypha is one of those games that I really want to like because I really like the setting. The setting's fascinating. The setting's fascinating. But like the game just doesn't, come together quite as well which is interesting but joe now that we've covered that i think it's time that we had a serious conversation about penis monsters <laughs> I, th- I think that's fair i think that's fair i mean I, I i am generally i'm generally in favor of them but where would you find something like that joe so i've heard of this game on the win called kingdom death monster you mean and the I game think... that you've spent thousands of dollars on yeah i mean maybe so let's talk about kingdom death monster so it was released in 2015 published by Kingdom Death, really? Yeah, that's, that's the name, name of the company. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right then. Yeah. And uh, designed by Adam Poots. 
the least aggressive name ever. You're like, Adam Poots. I've met him. He's a super nice guy. And I'm like, how did you make this weird game? You know it was designed by Adam Poots because I think on the bottom of every single figure is this little it's a embossing bird. Yeah. that says, I heart Poots. Yeah. Which, before I knew who did the game, I'm like, what the hell is this talking about? <laughs> and given some of the content of some of the figures, you could be forgiven for thinking it was something else entirely. Now, I will say... Not all of the figures in this game have penises on them. Sure. Some of the monsters are made of just varying sizes of things like fingers. That's or, true. Or hands or coming hands. out of buttholes. Or boobs. I mean, yeah. boobs. Boobs, sure. yeah. So Kingdom Death Monster is a board game. And that's all you really sort need of. to know. <laughs> it's a thing. I mean, I think given the past you know, two minutes of conversation, you already know whether you're interested in this game or not. <laughs> so Kingdom Death Monster is, you are part of a settlement of survivors functionally and you are trying to survive in this very dark and bleak and very you know hr geiger very gothic very you have a rock go i can describe (laughs) the setting of the world in two sentences go the sky is black the earth is made of faces. Stone faces. Stone faces. Sure. The earth yeah. is made of stone faces. That is true. Sometimes that, that it's made is of, the entirety of the universe. Sometimes it's made of stone feet, and then sometimes you fall off of it because of your crazy person. But that's the thing that happens. Oh, um, yeah. So the game is a big old bag of random, functionally. Um, so the game has two phases. Actually, three phases. It has a hunt with a monster, a city phase, and then like traveling to the next hunt and then back from the hunt. And so in the hunt, you are on a big grid board and you're moving figures around and you're using whatever weapons you have. In the first encounter, you're fighting a white lion and everyone has rocks and loincloths and good luck. In what is probably one of the best introductions to a, oh, yeah. a board game ever. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you were wondering how hard this game is going to be, this is how hard it's going to be. But what's really fascinating about those rocks is you can just whack things with it or you can get rid of them, discard them to just deal a crit because they are extremely pointy rocks. They're so pointy. And you want to keep them because there are are reasons to keep them. You will need those later. So your introduction to the universe is you bludgeoning a giant lion to death with rocks. And probably someone getting mauled to death, maybe too. Almost at least. Lots of characters die. Oh, so much why you have a village fall. And so then you go to your village and you start with a certain number of populace and your characters add to that populace. And then you have some events inside of your civilization, right? You might have new kids, right? You might have... Acid rain, you might have a lantern festival come into town, right? You might encounter the bone witch. She's a real jerk. Yeah. And then you you can like build new buildings and construct new equipment from all the the resources you gain by killing the monster. Because you use every, every part, part of, of the, the monster. <laughs> every part. Native Americans will be proud. It's a really animal forward game when you think about it even though it does consist of mostly brutally murdering animals well when you say animals these are things like the screaming antelope which is just a thing that you know has its giant rib cage open and exposed and is screaming all the time but also its rib cage are made of human teeth sure we're just trying to get it to stop screaming really when you get right down to it the game is not for everyone it is definitely not for everyone (laughs) certainly not for anyone uh, you know under 18 years of age So the final phase is you go to a hunt, right? You pick what you're going to hunt next, and you go through their paragraph book, rolling dice to determine a random paragraph, and you just encounter 
a whole bag of random until you get to the mo- next monster. And trying to survive the trip to the next yes, monster, exactly. which is not a given. Yeah, Joe's not kidding about random. I literally had something called cancer pigeons kill one of my characters. <laughs> you might die on the way to the hunt, and if you die on the way to the hunt, then you just fight that hunt with less people. Suck it. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on over the course of the campaign, at least in the base campaign, because there's a bunch of, of sort of alternate campaign stories with different bosses. But at least in the base campaign, there are a lot of times with, you know, in year three of the campaign, because each turn is... A lantern year. A year, yeah. a lantern year. In year three of the campaign, this person shows up and says, I'm going to kill two of your population. And you can either let them do it or say no and fend them off. And depending on what you do, five years later, that person may show back up. And if you let him do the sacrifice, he gives you a bunch of cool stuff. And if you don't, he will just murder everybody. Well, and I think that's what's really interesting about this story, right? It's like it is hinting at some bigger universe. There is something out there. But that is not your concern. Your concern (laughs) is how are we going to survive this thing that's immediately in front of us. Yeah, it's a very sort of Lovecraft-style, uncaring universe that is just going on about its business, and you're just trying to stay alive. Yeah. I absolutely love it, uh, introducing this game to people um, for the first time, because if I get can get them to play long enough to get to the first Nemesis encounter, because during the course of the campaign, at certain key thresholds you reach, you'll have a nemesis encounter, which are very, very difficult boss fights where they come to your settlement and just wreck you. And the first one you encounter is one called the Butcher. Well, by the time you get to the Butcher, you've started to get a feel for the game. You've started improving your characters yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we're competent now. Yeah, we've You're got kicking some, lions' butts. Yeah, we've, yeah, you've murdered lots of lions. You have different equipment. You're like, okay, cool. Then this guy just shows up. He's like, I'm going to cut your faces off and put them on my lanterns. You're like, what? No. And he so, does. so good at it. Oh, they're in our party. Okay. <laughs> One of the interesting things about him is that is the first time that you see metal. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because everything up until now has been made out of bone meat and pie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Lion testicles. So that's a thing. This is definitely a campaign game, but the board that you play on is a fixed set of grids. It's basically a, a featureless grid, which you add some terrain to based right. on the encounter. And it is highly tactical, even to the point where facing matters. Mm-hmm. Each monster that you fight certainly you need to figure out how a given monster works the first time you fight a new thing you are probably going to get murdered because they move differently they attack differently they react differently when they're wounded the monster eyes are pretty sophisticated and they do a lot of neat things but there is definitely a learning curve for each new type of thing and even then they're random because not all the cards are set each time. It's not a fixed Sure, deck. but you at least have a better idea of what, of what it's like to do. the kind of things are in the deck, yeah. Yeah, one of the things I love about that monster AI deck is, like, as the monster starts taking damage, those cards get removed from its deck, mm-hmm. which sometimes, like, oh, man, we got rid of that thing where he, like, knocks you down and tears your arm off yeah. and then it tramples you. But you could also end up to a point where his deck is, like, one card, and you just keep getting that trample you maul you and rip your arm off. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's neat things. You know, if you do the right thing, if you damage its jaw, it doesn't bite you anymore. The entire monster deck and the way that mechanisms work is extremely clever. Like, in, in a lot of ways, this game is extremely clever the entire time. Right? Like, every piece of this game is like, you fight a monster and you crit a lion and you crit it on its jaw and now, like... Some of the lion cards have, like, the bite keyword on them. And if it has the bite keyword on them and you've destroyed its jaw, it has a penalty or it doesn't... Or that card is just, like, canceled or something. Like, every time you fight a monster and you get one of those crits to go off and it does something that will affect his AI deck, it feels meaningful. It feels impactful to that fight. Like, it's noticeable every time it happens. 
And it's amazing for, for a game with characters that literally start from nothing, you build stories around these people. It's like, oh, this is Mike's character who, like, you know, cut the lion's hand off. And then, you know, this is this is uh, Brian's character who killed the butcher and got one of his cleavers. You're like, and it makes their and losses all the greater. die horribly. <laughs> well, and, and I think part of that is because characters can take wounds that do not heal. So, for example, I remember one of Joe's archers, because Joe really liked playing archers, went blind. This is a problem (laughs) for an archer. And so that person was just in town, hanging out, doing things. I think I brought them to a nemesis encounter one time, because it was like, hey, we're going to lose this nemesis encounter anyway, so like, I'm going to bring my blind person and have them fire some arrows at this person, because who cares? This game oozes love. Like yeah. in in many ways. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this game oozes. Period. Okay. It oozes many things. Yes. But like, I think one of the things like this is talking about top five games. This game is easily, oh yeah, easily in my top five games. It, like it could be number one. I'm not entirely sure, but it could be number. It's one. It's really fascinating. And one yeah. of the reasons it is is, and much like Gloomhaven, like Gloomhaven has this exact same thing, which is like the game screams how much the creator loves this game. It is like a passion project of passion projects. And much like Gloomhaven, right, like passion projects don't always work, but when they work, they work amazingly, Good. right? And like in, in Kingdom Death Monster, much in the same way as Gloomhaven, the game just screams the creator loves this game and lives this game and wants you to love and live it too. And when all those things mesh, it's just, it's an amazing sight to behold. And and this yeah. game and Gloomhaven are just amazing board game experiences. And like, this mm-hmm. is an amazing board game experience, in my opinion. I think a, a great example with the love that Joe is talking about. The core game of Kingdom Death Monster comes with sprues for building miniatures of every single component you can make in the game. You can literally build any character in the game in any gear layout for the most part like with some exceptions i'm sure but like it is insane yeah here's the here's the leather armor bits that you put on that particular miniature i mean the miniatures in this game are extraordinary now you've probably gathered from the conversation so far that this is definitely an adult flavored game there's a lot of very specific and detailed gore in the things there's a lot of sexual imagery certainly yeah Yeah, exactly if you're interested go do a google search for kingdom death monster miniatures with safe search turned on because there's a lot of the miniatures that are just really cool looking and there are some that will disturb you but the level of detail in them is really spectacular as i've said this game is really expensive but to be fair you get a ton of content in there the the campaign just the base campaign is probably 40 50 hours of play yeah, yeah. And play through highly replayable and certainly oh yeah replayable it is a commitment to be sure, but I think it's, yeah, it's I a mean, really Each monster good game. is a game in itself. Mm-hmm. And the one other thing I would say about Kingdom Death, if I had a complaint about it, is that it can be a little grindy. Oh, you know, if you need to get set up to, to fight the next type of monster, it's like, well, we have to kill six more antelopes to get enough leather to make everybody the armor we're going to need. So The game is really incremental. So if you don't like a game that rewards you incrementally, this will not be your kind yeah, of game. Yeah, it is definitely it is, a slow growth. It is a slow growth game, right? And like, if, if you hear me say, oh man, we fought this thing 15 times, and you're like, man, that seems like a lot. This is not the game for you, right? Like, Because <laughs> this is the thing. like Every single one of those fights was different. Sure. Mm-hmm. Every single time we headed we traveled to that thing was different right like there are lots of different pieces but like it is incremental right so like we had a 
ton of fun oh, yeah. Yeah. that guy for as long as we did but all the other things that are going on are what kind of make yeah, up for the things back in the village are all going to be different yep. different things right? but, oh yeah but like i totally agree like if you if you think oh man doing the same thing twice in a row is not for me this is not the game for you this is just not the game for you and that's okay like not every game has to be for everyone all the fights are really fun all the monsters are really clever the first time you fight a monster, it's always terrifying. I remember the first time I fought the Phoenix, it was just <laughs> oh my god, nightmarish. Wait, it just did what? And what? Okay, now we're all dead. Okay, moving on. Oh, you're lucky to be dead. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> you're glad that you died. Brian, my character has been erased from existence. <laughs> These things happen. Oh, well, no. okay. Wow, how do you follow that? Keeping that not entirely safe and definitely adult style, we have Dungeon Degenerates Hand of Doom. Published in 2017 by Goblin Co. Designed by Sean Auberg and Eric Rady. This is a kind of almost like a bunch of 80s games workshop designers. Drank a lot of beer, had a bunch of sausages, and were listening to, you know, 80s era punks and Black Flag and said, yeah, we're going to do this game. And uh, yeah, they did. And it's awesome. It almost feels like the board game version of Epic Spell Battles of the Wizards of Mount Skullsfire. Yeah, there's some of that. So in the game, you play the scum of the earth. Basically, you start in a prison with your first task being to break out of the prison. And you're all criminals. Part of your character sheet shows why you were arrested. (laughs) And you're not nice people basically play on the same map and each scenario sends you to some other place that may give you a couple paragraphs or some other quest that sends you to some other place. So it's mostly kind of a pick up and deliver. Some of the mechanics don't come in for a while. The way combat works is very talisman You roll for every monster that's attacking you, roll both your dice and compare d6s to see who hits. There's a hand of stances. So you have to choose your stance as to whether your third die is added to attack or defense because you might not want to take their hit points. But because damage is fixed, combat is really fast. So it takes, you know, two, three minutes to resolve a combat with everyone fighting. Once you've cleared the guys in front of you, specifically monsters are going to attack you. You can then help somebody else clear their monsters because they're probably close to death at that point. So it is cooperative despite the fact that you're all scum? Yeah, totally. It is cooperative. And the scenarios branch, so you may not get to all the scenarios in a game depending on your choices made in previous scenarios. There's also a big sandbox thing going. A lot of the board has numbers on them. And depending on how events come out, as well as how you do in combat, will affect how those numbers change and places become more dangerous. Eventually they become too dangerous for you to enter or a town might become just uninhabitable. And so you can't go there to shop. Most importantly, there's a giant Death Star-sized Hand of Doom that'll occasionally land on the planet, bringing its own deck of chaos and disorder once you start getting up to those higher numbers. Even then, you're basically not nice people, so there's nothing heroic. You're going around just trying to survive and occasionally kill things and get sausages and beer and (laughs) killer fish. The monsters themselves are almost all unique in the various decks, tailored to the various regions of the map and have a number of special abilities. It's a capricious game, so the basic encounters are kind of easy when you hit a boss. Occasionally an encounter will suddenly just go wrong with one power just suddenly kind of falling and running through, or you get like a a champion bosses that'll come in and just wreck your day. We haven't had any deaths yet, but it's a really compelling game and a sprawling campaign. Miniatures don't come with the game, 
but the actual miniatures are these glorious old school white metal minis and everything is done with an art style the artist is sean auberg who did posters for punk bands in the portland area and the game definitely has that aesthetic so it's all day glow black light you want to see it on a velvet poster the board is a giant sprawling illustration of insanity has a little bit of an ernie crumb vibe almost oh yeah totally and even the board has that kind of look there are bad puns all through the game one of the early goblin types is the cock goblin (laughs) is that the new theme for adventure games (laughs) you know you might be armed with like a 10 year old sausage petrified sausage as one of your weapons there's a lot of versed the entire game takes place in the versed reich the sausage kingdom sausage kingdom (laughs) yes It really feels like this game should be sold in Spencer Gifts. (laughs) When you look at the rest of the Goblin Co. site, it kind of is. All their stuff is very Spencer's-y, but uh, Mm -hmm. decorated with Sean's art. Certainly distinctive. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And actually a good game. That's the weird part. Cool. So part of adventure is exploration. Looking around, going to places that you've never been, or perhaps you've been before and you don't remember it. Uh, That brings us to our next game, The Seventh Continent, released in 2017 by Sirius Pulp, designed by Ludovic Rodi and Bruno Sauter. It's a cooperative game. You're playing a character that has been cursed, that decides what the actual scenario will be. There's a ton of different curses in the base game. There's other expansions that add more curses. But essentially, you're trying to find the cure for this curse, because if you don't, you will perish or something terrible will happen to you. All the games start the same way. You build out um, a couple of cards with little smoke clouds around them, indicating that you you need to go and explore these places. Now, on each card, you have a couple of icons of interest. You'll have numbers that tell you which cards you're going to pull up. And you'll be spending, I think they're called are they action cards. You have actions, but to do a thing in most cases, you're drawing a number of cards from your shared deck. And the more cards you draw, the more like you are to get successes that you need to overcome the thing. But that is also your sort of collective endurance so if you spend too many cards you will run out and then you are doomed to failure yeah and the only way to recharge that endurance is by hunting and collecting food and eating and that will recharge cards into that deck each of the cards that you explore on or your characters are currently based on will have those these points of interest like for example you might start on an island that has a mountain and you'll have two different numbers you know you could climb to the top of the mountain or you could go on this little like ravine next to the mountain And depending on which choice you make, you'll pick up that card and it will tell you, you know, what other icons are on it or if something happens to you. And ultimately, you've been given a very vague map of where you're trying to get to to solve this curse. And you're exploring and building out this island as you go. It's hilarious. In the Kickstarter version that I purchased, it came with a uh, a playmat that is... Not at all. At any any way, shape, or means. Small. Yeah, it, there's no way this would ever work for any of the games I've played of it. But you're basically exploring this seventh continent, trying to find the cure to this curse. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I played the intro uh, scenario. I played about six hours into it, still haven't completed it. Not the smartest way to introduce a game to people. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest sins that this game makes, is that the introduction to the game is eight plus hours yeah and it is the second edition fixed it with like a two to three hour good yeah there are a couple interesting things about this game that i really find interesting I will say up front that I mostly play this as a solitaire game and I think it works best that way 
the more people you have, the less equipment and stuff each of them can carry, and it becomes pretty limiting. And silly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We played it at four, and each character could only hold two things. Yeah. It's an arbitrary game balance thing. I don't think it works that well. But anyway, one thing that's really interesting about this is that the map of the island doesn't change. Yes. You will start at a different location on the island, wherever you are, and there's like a jungle section and a snowy mountain section and a beach and a bunch of little islands and a river. But once you sort of have an idea of where things are, you can make use of that information in future playthroughs. You can know where the hunting grounds are. There are certainly going to be things that you find that you can't do anything with until you've found this other thing over here or have a particular piece of equipment. There are also some really interesting hidden things on the cards. For instance, the cards may have like a tiny little number written on them somewhere. And if you see that, you get the card corresponding to that number. Then it's like, oh, well, it turns out there's a cave entrance here that you didn't see and there's some stuff in it. So there's a lot of little interesting hidden bits and mechanisms going around. Yeah, it comes with a little magnifying lens for you mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to use on the map. The whole push-your-luck thing with the skills is really interesting because, you know, again, the more cards you draw, the more likely you are to get success, but you're also expending a lot more energy. And the cards can get upgraded. At certain points, you earn experience for completing certain things, and at a certain point, it will tell you you can spend experience to get your character's specific upgrades into the action deck. You get your character's cards when you start play, but they're like advanced skills that you can learn some of with experience. There's an expansion that just recently came out that involves a hot air balloon, which actually has a second layer of map on top of the Uh, map. So if you go up in the hot air balloon and go four squares north and come down, you'll be down on the ground space that is four squares under that. I haven't played with it yet, but it looks really fascinating. There's also a whole underground river thing. If you were interested in the idea of exploring and looking around and, and gradually piecing together what's going on in this world, it's really interesting. You have to worry about survival. It's kind of like if you were actually lost in the wilderness. You need to establish access to food and shelter and these kind of things first. Because if you just keep wandering around, you're going to run out of energy and die. So you need to make sure you have some spaces to get that. There's a lot of puzzling in it, if I'm not mistaken. There can be. Yeah, there are a variety of puzzles within the game in different encounters and stuff. Right. And so it kind of presents that same, like, there is a way to solve this that either one person can tell everybody how to do that, or you can play by yourself. But it's more like adventure game puzzles where I need to go here than here. I need this. Or it's a location puzzle where you have to solve kind of a more escape roomy miniature puzzle. And that was kind of, I think, the problem that I had as a four player game is it didn't really work. Yeah, I think with one or two players, it's pretty good. I I would not play with more than that. Yeah, This could be a good couples game. Mm hmm. I like the idea of having a single map on different scenarios. That's interesting because it does kind of feel like somebody took a map, did all the scenarios, and then said, but what if we chop this up into small squares? And that's, I think, on paper really cool. I would like to actually see it, but again, we never even made it through the end of the first campaign either. So Yeah, Yeah. and you can go out on the Geek and you can find people who have actually cleared the floor in their living room and laid out the entire map of the island. And it's pretty epic. So if you were to take Kingdom Death and kind of combine it with, say, the puzzly aspects of Seventh Continent, you might end up with something like City of Kings. This is from 2018, the City of Games, designed by Frank West. And it's odd. It's almost diceless. You play on a grid of tiles. 
you have your hero and then a worker or two workers you can move around. You're mostly picking up resources, dragging them back to main town to buy what little stuff is available. The set of tiles is fixed for scenario. There are both a set of standalone scenarios, I think about 25 of them on cards, as well as a seven session campaign. There's no actual progression that you keep from scenario to scenario. It's just if you start on the level three campaign scenario, it says, oh, just heap up with this many experience points and then go. So if you happen to have screwed up and not gotten enough experience in your previous run, you just take your character and bump them up or take a different character and bump them up to the right amount for that scenario. So it's more tailored scaled missions. What makes City of Kings is the diceless and puzzle aspect, but also the monsters. There aren't, you know, a bunch of little minions that kind of wander onto the board and you fight. When a monster is spawned, it's something you regret. (laughs) Something you're absolutely terrified of. This is a thing that'll move around on the overland board and hunt you and kill you. And often require two or three rounds from all the players to take out. If you get two or three of these monsters on the board at once... Three, definitely, I think you probably lost the game. Wow. So is it cooperative or competitive? It's cooperative. Cooperative. But uh, since it's diceless, you may have to try to figure out how to stay out of range of its attacks. You know exactly what it's going to attack with, do what kind of damage. Sometimes it'll move, which means it'll move randomly, and you don't know exactly where it's going to end up, which is going to screw with your plans. You know how much damage you'll do? You might do a little extra damage. Yay. And this is the one where the monsters have sort of a set of random abilities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, when, when the monster appears, it gets a set of random abilities from a number of bags that determine what its characteristics are. First of all, you get a tile that represents its base abilities, including whether it reflects damage, how much armor it has. How much it heals every round. <laughs> and they get tougher over time. So, sure. you know, your ninth monster that spawns, yeah, it's going to be a lot tougher than the first. So you better have gone up. Yeah, it's funny. As you're defeating monsters and doing other things, you're getting XP points that you can start increasing your stats or maybe increasing the stats of your resource farmers. One of the stats that I really liked is there's a luck stat that gives you a luck die that you roll on every check you ever do. So I was like, maximize this. Yes. <laughs> you roll as many luck dice and take the best for each for the luck dice. But like one of them's like you get 50% of whatever your stat is added to um, oh, one yeah, of the checks, which, is, which is awesome. I got to say, this game was on my radar, but it came out shortly after I did a short stint of unemployment. And so I could never afford it. But like just kind of looking at it, it definitely calls out to me in like all the right ways and like i love the aesthetics of the game too yeah it's pretty decent aesthetics but in particular it's the monsters we've absolutely gone into like 30 minute discussions of how to kill a monster (laughs) some of the final bosses on like the first campaign scenario are like we're planning two full rounds in advance and going into the puzzle aspect just because what spawned was so obscenely obnoxious when we turned it up it's like yeah we're done okay well, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what, what if? if? <laughs> and then gradually turned into what if, 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 if. Oh, no, that fails. Crap. <laughs> yeah, so I got to demo this at Gen Con, and it was hilarious because our mission, kill two monsters. That's all you have to do. That, <laughs> that was the mission. sounds easy. Yeah, well, we're like, all right, we got this covered. So, like, the first monster spawns. He's not that bad. He reflects a damage, and that was kind of annoying because, like, you have, like, four health to start with, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, like, you, you die. But you get respawn tokens. You get, like, two respawn tokens. So we killed the first monster. So we're looking around for the second monster. We spawn the second monster. We're like, okay, all right, I think in another round or so we'll be ready because we'll all be converged on him to hit him. Courtney explores a third time for <laughs> no reason whatsoever. 
We already accomplished our goal. We found the second monster. And you can't win a mission if there's any monsters on the board after your mission. So we have two monsters on the board. Total party kill. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just dead. <laughs> I think he was a hidden traitor. He just was playing <laughs> the wrong game. I couldn't believe I was like, why are you exploring? We don't need anything. What are you doing? Ah, it's a monster. <laughs> yeah. That's why I told you not to do that. Yeah, I'm and there's sure a lot of that it would game. have been fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. It's also kind of nice in that, you know, the whole alpha player co-op problem is kind of ameliorated because the game is so freaking hard mm-hmm. and there's a lot going on in your character sheets it's not that bad it generally takes three or four minds to figure out how to deal with something so it's just more than one person can keep track can keep of. track of yeah. yeah and like you were saying the monsters they do move randomly you flip a card and it's like is this a valid path no okay use this alternate path that's not valid use this other alternate. you have no idea where they're gonna go it's oh, yeah. crazy and they'll do the same thing. Like we had one that was like punching us across the board. <laughs> you yeah. follow whatever the random path. Do you uh, own it? No. Okay. I have it. I would like of course. to play it. Like, yeah, I, I totally. want to play it. Each monster that comes on has a bit of that feel, the kingdom death boss, except that you're always encountering it for the first time because mm-hmm. it's a randomly generated. And so the game's great. It also plays in, you know, a reasonable amount of time. It's interesting. One of the games we didn't put on this list just because we've talked about it a lot before is Too Many Bones. And their new Kickstarter expansion is I know. functionally that. Yeah. It's like, here, take random bits mm-hmm. of the other monsters that you have defeated, yep. and we're going to stitch them together into a new monster that you have to fight. Yeah, splice and dice. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing I'm most excited about for this expansion is the box. <laughs> yes. That's so God so knows this game needs a box. <laughs> yeah, most like Mike, I definitely want to give this game a try. It sounds really fascinating. We've mentioned it in passing a couple times before, and it's just kind of like, I think I might like that. I don't know. I'd like to try. Oh, yeah. Much like from Mike, like it came to the time when I was in the midst of backing the second round of Kingdom Death. And so that was where all my... Uh, so yeah, functionally yeah. all of your money. That's where all, all of my play money for that month went. For. Yeah, there's that. For that month? Like for a couple months. I hate you, yeah. Joe. Because, <laughs> come on, Joe. You just went on to Kickstarter and said, give me all the things. <laughs> it did become mathematically advantageous for me to just pay for everything. Even if there's things you didn't want. Well, then just... I could stop thinking about it, right? Because right. the number kept creeping up to the, this is just the buy every the frog god level. And it's like, kept creeping up. And it's like, well, it's like a hundred bucks away. I'm just going to do that one and stop watching. Yes. So that I don't need to think anymore and I'll just get everything. And yeah. then maybe sell some of it on the secondary my market. Hope. So can we step away from fantasy for just a little bit? Back to zombies? No. Oh. What about cowboys? Can we try cowboys? Sure, why not? It seems so... like an adventurous thing. That brings us to Western Legends, which is a 2018 release by Colossal Games, designed by Hervé Lemaitre. I'm I'm sorry, Herv. (laughs) I'm not entirely certain what I feel about this game. (laughs) So this is a game of cowboys and robbers? Cowboys and bandits. Uh, When I played it, it's mine, mine, mine. (laughs) So, like, in this game, you each play a character of the Wild Western tropes, and you can basically do what you want in order to get the points that will let you win. That could be that you are a cattle rustler getting cows from point A to point B. You could be a bank robber and just go rob the bank. You can go out and mine for gold and just be a prospector like there are all of the tropes of the western american dream i guess yeah and some of them are more adventurous than others i mean if you're going out and mining gold and bringing them back to town that's sort of a more euro-y unless of course one of the people who's decided to become a robber goes and tries to jump you but yeah you know you can be a legitimate cattle baron or a cattle rustler there's Sort of a basic alignment system where you can do things that make you more of a good guy or a bad guy. 
And if you're at the extreme end of either of those spectrum, you can get points for it. There are ways that you can sort of swap sides at different stages of the game. And and they score points differently, Mm -hmm. which make them feel very different. You know, in kind of talking about it, it does really remind me of the Zaya Legends of a Drift system where it's like, Mm -hmm. you're a spaceship, go do spaceship things. Mm -hmm. Except this one is a little bit more... You're a cowboy, go do cowboy things. Right. It's a little bit more western it sounds like there isn't much exploration you kind of know what's around or uh, yeah, you know where everything yeah, is. Okay. yeah you know where everything is and really i think the adventure aspect of this is you're kind of much like with arabian nights and some of these other games that we've discussed you're kind of creating the story that you are going through yeah i mean that is the adventure in it and it was fun until somebody came and wrecked my face, <laughs> and that became far less fun. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, the characters that you get who are all authentic Western figures, okay. each have, like, a, a minor ability that sort of skews them in one particular direction or another as far as what you're going to do. But honestly, it's kind of a Euro-y point salad adventure game okay. in that, you know, you want to be doing things that not a lot of other people are doing, because if everybody's mining gold, then there's not going to be as much gold available for you, so maybe you go and do the cattle thing and... It's got a bunch of different mechanisms. It's got a poker card-based combat and action mechanic, which is neat. Cool. I think you're right about this. I feel like somebody said, well, what if this Euro game was an adventure game? And that's kind of what spawned this. But that really sounds like an adventure, adventure kind of game. And there's pickup and deliver kind of feeds into the adventure game because there are often quest overlays on yeah, adventure games. Yeah, bring me five little yeah. belts. <laughs> well, and there are definite moments in the game in which characters make decisions that have drastic and far-reaching consequences on everybody's play. Like, the moment somebody decides, I'm not winning, fuck it, I'm just going to go rob this bank now, like, that has an effect on people who are mining gold and bringing it to the bank. It oh, yeah. is fun in the way that living out a life in the Wild West is fun. Except with less dysentery. That's that's <laughs> certainly true. The game is a classic point salad game. And so like the first couple times you're playing like, hey, how do I want to win is a good question. And then like watching other people do strategies or like the first time Jason played, he was telling me that he just spent the entire game mining and oh, yeah. he got a, a horse that could make him move faster and he just mined and ran back and forth and he won. Yeah, it's great. Everyone else is shooting each other. I'm like, all right, mm, dig, dig, right, dig. Like if you get left alone as a miner, you're going to win, right? Because mm-hmm. it is the most effective way to win points. Yeah, oh, you're responsible for balancing each other. It is yes. also the easiest way to mess with someone. Yeah, absolutely. The first couple of times you play, right, someone might have discovered a new mechanic and be like, cool, I'm just going to run away with it with this mechanic. But after everyone kind of has a feel for how all the game mechanics work, then you can kind of like sit down and say, okay, cool, I want to figure out all this stuff. I also don't know how I feel about this game functionally. I want to like it, but I don't know how I feel about point salad games in general. And like, this is really point salad like a lot. It's fine. I would play it. I don't think I would ever come to a gaming table and say, let's play Western <laughs> Legends. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I've only played it the one time, but like when they're like, oh, there's a mining thing, you roll dice. I'm like, oh, okay. So that must be really, really rare to get gold. No, it's super easy. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, why why isn't everyone doing this? So that's the main list of games that we wanted to talk about today. There's certainly a ton of other games in this genre. I've got um, a couple hundred, and yeah, we exactly. missed your favorite, I'm sure. Yeah, There's certainly ones like Betrayal at House on the Hill, which we talked about extensively in the, the Paragraph Games episode fits in here. Too Many Bones. There's a couple others that look interesting. 
Sleeping Gods is one that I've got an eye on. It's a Kickstarter right now. It will probably be over by the time this episode airs. But it's from Ryan Lockett, the guy behind Near and Far and Above and Below. And it has a very Seventh Continent-y feel to me in that there's this big fixed map that you are plunked down in the middle of and you have to go and explore stuff and figure out what's going on. There's a neat combat system. It's cooperative. You all sort of split up the members of the crew, use different skills. Some people get exhausted and wounded and you have to make things to heal them up. I am not the biggest fan of the Near and Far and Above and Below games, but this one has enough of a fixed world with exploration stuff, which is kind of my jam. So I'm sort of looking forward to seeing where that one goes. It's it's moving in the right direction, though, right? Because, like, Near and Far is better than Above and Below. So if this is better than Near and Far, then great. Yeah, and it seems to have a lot less of the fiddly town Euro-y stuff that is what I didn't care for in those two. So, Yeah, freaking Above and Below. It's like, do you want to win or do you want to have fun? I'm like, ugh. I hate when a game (laughs) asks me if I want to win or I want to have fun. At least Near and Far got rid of that aspect. Right, exactly. And it's like, that's a big step up, right? Because like, I literally hate that. Do you want to do the thing that will cause you to win or do you want to do the thing that's entertaining? You know, it's also worth like Stuff Fables and Komonauts and like all the games in that avenue could easily fit in this kind of genre as well. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. There's uh, Fallout, which is another one that has to kind of pick up and deliver thing. No, 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 no. As long as you fix the ending, okay, it's fine. The ending out of the box is terrible. Yeah. Thank you, BGG. Yes, exactly. So there's always Big Trouble in Little China, <laughs> which is a functionally a game where you are a guy with a sword and win, I think, as far as I can remember, that's the way that game works. Yeah, just like the movie. Just like the movie. If you get the magic sword, you, you win the game. That's the way it works. Uh, you, you do need a green-eyed girl. That's true. That's you know, true. funny thing about we had actually played that game because Brian got it and he was a big fan of the movie. I have never seen the movie. He had. You had never seen the movie. You've seen it now. I, I, we realized I mean, that during I, the play of the game when he's like, I don't understand what any of these people are doing. <laughs> I was like, what is going on in this board game? Like, why is this sword making me win better? I don't get it. And so then I had to go and watch the movie. And Yeah, we actually have a whole uh, about a 10 minute discussion that is edited out of one of the earlier episodes that I may release as bonus content someday, which is us sort of lamenting your deplorable lack of John Carpenter film knowledge. Yeah. 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 It is a fun game. Some balance issues, maybe, but still cute yeah it's it's silly fun yeah i was always a big fan of return of the heroes which is a pick up and deliver hiding in adventure clothing literally the monsters are like keys you have to get past to get to the part where you're delivering your quest and it's a game built around that but oddly compelling time stories fits in this as well like, yep like yep, stories. certainly does so that is the end of today's adventure but as always we will be back but if we miss any games that y'all think should have definitely been on our list let us know i've probably played them I'll happily comment. As you may have been able to tell by listening to this, we like this kind of game a lot. So if there's some good ones that we should explore, please let us know what they are. Can't wait for one of us to win the lottery so that we can just all retire and play more games. Yeah, that sounds great. We should do that. Yeah, really, definitely, yeah. Jason, get on that. Um, I'm working on it right now. You're the bankroll behind this entire operation, so I didn't know uh, if you I knew that. I all of Kingdom Death. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's why you have to be the bankroll, because Joe doesn't have any more money. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> have you not seen Joe's beautiful two-story cardboard box? <laughs> I assumed he was making a house out of all the sprues from Kingdom Death. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm building a house out of all the boxes that Joe gets with all of his board games in the kitchen right now it's, it's pretty great i have one of those too it's <laughs> yeah a little terrifying. yeah you do all right enough of that nonsense we will talk to you folks again next month and as always thanks for listening bye 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 we hope you have enjoyed this episode of the ascent of board games which is protected by the creative commons license 
Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. You guys told me to start looking at fucking Wikipedia, and that's what Wikipedia said, so there you go.